Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and therefore it is time to talk about science and skepticism once again. So um, I want to remind you that, as always, you can find me during the week at Evidence-Based Radio on Facebook. You can also email me with questions or concerns um, or even comments at evidencebasedradio at gmail.com. Now, you can also listen to this and past shows on your favorite podcasting platforms. So I'm now on iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, Google Play, um, thanks to the uh, tireless efforts of my uh, wonderful husband. And so before we get into things, I have a few announcements. Um, And so first off, I want to to definitely not forget that this weekend is the Orion Meteor Shower um, or the Orionid uh, Meteor Shower. And so the the meteors are actually fragments from Halley's Comet. Um, So that's pretty cool, Um, even though they are theoretically coming from the uh, area of the sky near Orion's um, belt and the constellation of Orion, they are actually um, coming from Halley's Comet. And in fact, my self-said husband uh, actually saw a meteorite fall this afternoon in full daylight. Uh, And I will actually post a picture that he took uh, on the Facebook afterwards that he just sent me. And so even if you're not willing to stay up until the wee hours of the night, you should definitely uh, go outside for at least a while this evening. And so you have a pretty good chance of seeing at least, you know, one or two uh, shooting stars. And, uh, you know, these kinds of meteor showers are always very cool to experience. And so, yeah, hopefully you won't have to stay up, though they do say, the best time is, of course, around 1.30 in the morning. Um, so, yeah. And secondly, I want to remind you that this coming Monday is a special edition of Nerd Night NoHo, which is going to be this uh, time at the Academy of Music. And so Gary Felder, professor of physics at Smith College, and Brock Togerson, who um, re- did research at CERN's Large Hadron Collider and is now teaching at physics at UMass Amherst, they will discuss the Big Bang and beyond and the black holes of scientific knowledge, respectively. And so um, this is part of a prelude to uh, November's performance of Jack Fry's one-man show, Einstein, at the Academy. And so that sounds like it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, as always, admission is only five dollars. Uh, though, if you order online, there may be an admi- an additional fee. Um, so, yeah, Nerd Night is always a great time, uh, learning great things from interesting people, and I always highly recommend it. And so, that's it. That's all of my announcements for today. So, let us start with our stories for tonight. And I wanted to start with a rebuttal to a story that I brought you last week. (laughs) And um, I thought this was especially funny since it's not about the story that I carefully explained may or may not be true because there are several layers of, you know, possibility here. And so this is a great lesson in skepticism. Sometimes when a story is announced that makes sense, 
with especially with what you already know about a subject, you tend to not look for as many faults as you would otherwise if it was something really odd and outstanding to you. And obviously, I am certainly not above this, and I am happy to share that I might be wrong. And so before I talk about this, which is this is opposing views to the story about Viking cloth with uh, supposedly Ali and Allah in um, block Kufic script, I want to again emphasize the importance of looking at both supporting and contrary evidence for all positions. This is the only way that we can continue to try and find information that is closest to the truth. Now, among those who are skeptical of the claim are Stephanie Mulder, who is an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin's Department of Art and Art History, and she studies Islamic art history and archaeology. She notes, I was immediately suspicious about about the style of Arabic epigraphy. It's really so simple that I spent five days thinking it couldn't be that Larson would make so fundamental and obvious a mistake. She points out that the style of inscription that Larson had looked at didn't actually come into uh, favor and wasn't actually widely used until about 500 years after the uh, textiles that Larson was looking at. And so she and others, including uh, textile uh, enthusiast and scholar Caroline Priest Dorman, also noted that the interpretations by Larson is based on a proposed extension of the existing pattern. And so, of course, that places it squarely in the realm of conjecture. And perhaps most damningly, the band, according to Mulder, would have actually said something closer to Laha rather than Allah. Um, And she says that this is a sort of easy mistake to make because the characters for the letter A and L look almost identical in Arabic. Um, But of course, L-L-H-A-H would make no sense in Arabic. There's nothing that that corresponds to. And so one of the other things that I thought was really interesting about this is that um, Mulder points out, and I have to agree with her, um, that the importance of this is that it's not only the the interest isn't only in scholarship, of scholarship being correct, but it's also very much something that can be integral to a political debate. And so she notes that there is now a very real fight for the true history of Scandinavia, as white supremacists attempt to paint the Vikings as pure Aryan Nordic ancestors who are 100% white. And so she tweeted, when the medieval and particularly the Viking age is used as an ideological weapon by white supremacists, and scholars are risking careers to fight white supremacist appropriation, then it matters that we get this right. The media can report on the diversity of the global Middle Ages without trumped-up scholarship. We need news media to be our allies, consult experts, and get the facts right. Now, one thing is completely clear. The Vikings absolutely had contact with the Arab world, but it does no one any favors to add unsupported evidence to that already established, well-established fact. 
Paul Cobb, a professor of Islamic history at the University of Pennsylvania, told The Atlantic that people want to see Arabic there because it resonates today with a dream of a more inclusive Europe. There's a real desire to document that Vikings had interactions, not to mention, not to mention intermarriages, with many non-Vikings, he continued. That flies in the face of the white supremacists, who see Vikings as Nordic warriors defending Europe from foreign pollution when nothing could be further from the truth. They were one of the, greatest, the great international societies of the Middle Ages. And again, they were absolutely interested in Arabic trade goods, especially as a sign of wealth and cosmopolitanism. And so that is absolutely a true fact. But as with any scientific idea, any truth claim, it's important to make sure that your facts are supported and not wander into the realm of speculation. Now, Larson, for her part, is currently sticking to her guns and suggests that more information is forthcoming. The scripts on the ribbons are like secret messages, she told Gizmodo. First, I thought they were copied by someone who didn't understand the message, but the patterns in the ribbon are like a puzzle or a rebus to read. I've spoken to Muslims that tell me, tell me that even today, sometimes you don't want to say, write, depict God's name clearly, so then you can make it like a puzzle and even mirror it. I think that is what the Vikings have done on these ribbons. Now, that's a different opinion. Um, and so I think that at this point, what we have to do is wait for the uh, peer-reviewed published work and then to see how it's received. Um, and so I will actually be looking to kind of check in back with this because I think it's a great case study in um, competing ideas and of ways that we really have to be careful about especially, um, as others have noted in this piece, the idea of sort of seeing what we want to see based on the world that we want to live in rather than the world that might be there. And, um, you know, I also think it's a very good point that even if this turns out to be completely true, it doesn't negate the fact that Vikings were not isolationists. They were not defending the white homeland of Europe against foreign invaders. They traveled extensively. They traded with people extensively. They had ties to Persia. They were in Russia. They were in all sorts of places. They were in the Middle East, Byzantium, everywhere. Um, and so, um, they are definitely not some sort of protectionist, purist, uh, white, uh, you know, master race. That's just not who the Vikings were. Um, and so even if this, again, turns out to be wrong, that is still a true fact. And the Vikings were definitely interested in trading with people. And it's actually not until um, Christianity kind of finally took hold in uh, Scandinavia, that they sort of gave up some of these Eastern influences. But before that, there's actually a lot of Eastern influence in Viking clothing and in Viking grave goods and things like that. So um, they definitely were not some sort of uh, pure uh, nationalistic kind of uh, civilization that didn't deal with foreigners. Uh, that's 
completely, completely the opposite of what the Vikings were. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about a story that I'm actually kind of unhappy about. And I find it very strange that I'm unhappy about it, which is why I kind of wanted to talk about it, because it's one of those sort of weird, complicated things. And I also find that I don't talk about skepticism and um, atheism as much on the show as I might otherwise uh, like to. So I thought this was a good story. Now, despite the fact that I am a dyed-in-the-wool atheist and a very strong supporter of the separation of church and state, I'm actually not in favor of actions that give believers, especially those who believe that Christianity is oppressed in this country, ammunition to consider atheists as basically bitter reactionaries. And so you may have heard about this, it's been all over Facebook, uh, that on Wednesday, a 40-foot cross-shaped World War I monument in Blandensburg, Maryland, uh, which is often referred to as the Peace Cross, uh, that it was ordered to be dismantled by a federal court of appeals. Now, the cross was erected in 1925 to honor the 49 Prince George's County residents who died in World War I. The base of the structure is inscribed with the words valor, endurance, courage, and devotion. The Latin cross is the core symbol of Christianity, the court wrote in a 33-page opinion that included photographs of the memorial. And here it is, 40 feet tall, prominently displayed in the center of one of the busiest intersections in Prince George's County, Maryland, and maintained with thousands of dollars in government funds. Which is completely true. However, I still maintain that there are much better ways um, for organizations such as the American Humanist Association, which has been uh, funding the efforts to have this memorial uh, dismantled, uh, that there are better places where they could have put this money. Um, and so, you know, it's still going to be a fight. So, for instance, Adrian Gardner the general counsel for the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission, which owns the site and has spent $117,000 maintaining and repairing the cross, said in a statement, For now, the disposition of the case is still pending, and the commission has no immediate plans to make any changes relating to the memorial. And so... Um, one of the other things was that there are response. One of the responses from the uh, judges was about worries that this could set a precedent for other monuments, especially those at Arlington National Cemetery. And so the court wrote, "The crosses are much smaller than the forty-foot-tall monolith at issue here, and significantly, Arlington National Cemetery displays diverse religious symbols, both as monuments and on individual headstones." However, the dissenting judge, because it was a 2-1 judgment in the case, felt that, for instance, the size of the monument should not have any significance when it came to interpreting the law. Government war memorials should respect all veterans, not just those from one religious group, said Roy Specklehart, the American Humanist Association executive director. Religious neutrality is important in a pluralistic society like ours. Now, in principle, I would again say 
yes, he is completely true. But again, I am still really torn about this. I really don't think it makes sense to antagonize people in this manner when there are so many other more pressing violations of the separation of church and state happening all over this country right now, including uh, most prominently challenges to women's reproductive rights and their ability to maintain autonomy of their own bodies and basic rights for members of the LGBTQ community, as well as just the thought of, you know, people not having to have uh, religion in order to be considered uh, qualified for government and things like that. And of course, this is actually one of those places where we've traditionally had problems. But uh, this is the sort of don't... uh, kick the uh, bees, the beehive uh, mentality that I'm kind of feeling is in light of the fact that we finally started making some progress in the way that other people view atheists um, and those who don't believe in a god or gods. So for the first time, a Pew Research poll showed that 56% of American respondents found that belief in God is not necessary to be a moral person with good values. God is not a prerequisite for good values and morality, said author Gregory A. Smith of The Findings. The public's increased rejection of the idea that belief in God is necessary for morality is due, in large part, to the spike in the share of Americans who are religious nuns. Um, But the continued growth of the nuns is only part of the story, Smith continued. Attitudes about the necessity of belief in God for morality have also changed among those who do identify with a religion. And of course, I'm very, very happy to see those numbers rising, and I worry about anything that may change that trajectory. And of course, personally, I think that it should be obvious that the number of people who should respond in the affirmative to that would be much closer to 100%. Um, but I acknowledge the reality of our world rather than the ideal, which I would prefer. Um, and so I am very torn about this story. I really think that, you know, I looked at the picture and I thought, you know, it doesn't even, it it doesn't to me scream, this is government. Um, you know, it seems like it's in an island and, you know, I would have thought, and I guess, you know, the, the thing is, is that. Obviously, taxpayer money is going to um, or public money is going to support it and uh, maintain it. But otherwise, it I, you know, obviously, I am not a part of the organization's, uh, you know, the organizational team that decided that this was a good uh, test case. But um, yeah, anyways, (laughs) very mixed feelings about that. Now let us uh, completely change gears and uh, get back to the science. And so I wanted to talk about a couple of stories that have to do with evolution. Now, this first one is a look at birds in the UK that seem to be evolving longer beaks in order to more easily access, access food inside of bird feeders. And so it looks like great tits uh, or Paris major in the UK are experiencing a period of what the late evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould called punctuated equilibrium. 
So Gould believed that evolution was not a fluid, continuous change in the fitness of organisms, but rather that organisms could be static for a period of time and then, usually in response to a changed evolutionary pressure, have a period of rapid evolution in which traits could be evolved and selected for over what might be considered to others a too brief span of time. And so the new research published in Science suggests that birds with longer beaks are better able to access food, and thus this boosts their chance of reproduction, which in turn passes on a greater genetic propensity for longer beaks to the offspring of those unions. And so, you know, that's pretty standard evolution. But um, yeah, this is pretty much the quintessential example of classic Darwinian evolution, um, but seen at a much rat more rapid pace. And so it is over decades rather than centuries and millennia. And so the study has been observing great tits in the UK's Witham Woods and in Oosterhout and Villaway in the Netherlands. And so researchers from the University of Oxford, Oxford's Department of Zoology have been studying great tick tit populations in the Witham Woods for over 70 years. The researchers scanned the DNA of more than 3,000 birds, looking for genetic differences between the British and Dutch populations. And so what they found were uh, genes linked to facial features that were divergent in the two groups. And so in order to confirm the suspicion that the UK birds were adapting to bird feeders, they looked at the historical record of observations. They were also able to track the movements of some of the birds because they had been fitted with electronic tracking tags. And so they were actually able to show that birds with the genetic markers for longer beaks visited bird feeders more regularly than birds without that genetic variation. Between the 1970s and the present day, beak length has gotten longer among the British birds. That's a really short period in which to see this sort of difference emerging, said John Slate, a co-author of the new study and a professor at the University of Sheffield, in a statement. We now know that this increase in beak length and the difference in beak length between birds in, in Britain and mainland Europe is down to genes that have evolved by natural selection. Now, you might be thinking, what about those birds in the Netherlands? Don't they eat at bird feeders? Well, it turns out that feeding birds is much more prevalent in England and of course, I'd say the U.S. as well, uh, than it is on the mainland of Europe. In fact, at the start of the 20th century, Punch magazine described bird feeding as a British national pastime, said study co-author Lewis Spurgeon of the School of Biological Sciences at the University of East Anglia. Although we can't say definitively that bird feeders are responsible, it seems reasonable to suggest that the longer beaks among British great tit may have evolved as a response to this supplementary feeding. And so they suggest that if the trend continues, the great tits in Britain will become a specific subspecies of bird, as early uh, results suggest that these evolutionary changes are indeed exclusive to the British population. And so even when researchers have expanded the comparison to other great tits, populations on the mainland of Europe, they've continued to see that they don't have this uh, selection pressure for longer beaks. 
So that is pretty interesting. And um, so, yeah, but we are going to take a break for a moment and then we will come back and talk about evolution for another minute, uh, this time with a very famous um, E. coli population, which is a little different, but uh, very interesting nonetheless. So hang on for a moment while we do some PSAs and uh, some show promos. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. In the wake of a disaster, what one thing can you send that will help people the most? A blanket, a tent, a sandbag, a doctor. Actually, if you send a monetary donation, you send all these things. Even a small donation can make a big impact and can quickly become exactly what people affected by disaster need most. In the wake of a hurricane, your monetary donation can make a huge difference to those in need. To donate, visit supporthurricanerelief.org. That's supporthurricanerelief.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. Okay, and um, before we get back to stories, there is one uh Thing that I wanted to announce, which is that uh, Gateway City Arts in Holyoke is having a fundraiser this weekend. So um, tonight, tomorrow, and Sunday, 
They are going to be having uh, a huge fundraiser, lots of local musicians, and um, it is all going to Puerto Rico Relief, so to the Puerto Rico Relief Fund, and uh, tickets are $25 for a day or $60 for all three days. And so it's going until 11 p.m. tonight, and then both Saturday and Sunday, it'll be 11 to 11. So uh, if you are interested in that, Gateway City Arts in Holyoke. And so, yeah, great cause. And uh, I think there's going to be some really amazing bands playing there. So um, and all of the money is going to uh, Puerto Rico Relief. I don't think there's any overhead, basically. Um, So it's definitely your money. If you go, will be well spent. Okay, so let us get back to the uh, show. And so the other other study I wanted to talk about concerns a really interesting long-term study of E. coli. Now, one of the great things about bacteria is that they reproduce very fast, and thus many, many generations can be tracked uh, across researchers' careers. And so this rapidity of reproduction thus makes them an ideal subject for testing evolutionary ideas. And so learning more about how organisms adapt to their environment is essential for our ability to anticipate how certain organisms might respond to environmental pressures, for instance, global warming. And so the study by Monash University scientists is one of the, is Um, using information from one of the longest evolutionary studies, and uh, it debunks a sometimes held belief that evolution can have an end point where an organism can hit peak evolutionary fitness. And so um, it's using Dr. Richard Lenski's experiment. Uh, He's been conducting an experiment on 12 initial identical E. coli populations for the past 30 years. So basically he has, he's had 12 flasks that each have a uh, growth medium in them and a population of E. coli. They were all identical clones at the beginning of the experiment 30 years ago, and now they're all completely different. Um, Well, not completely different, but they're all different. The Lenski study is the longest running microbial evolution experiment with more than 67,000 generations of E. coli, which is equivalent to over 1 million years of human evolution, Dr. Mike McDonald, co-lead author from the Monash School of Biological Sciences said. In our study, we found that even though the E. coli populations in our experiment have been evolving in a very simple environment for a long time, they are still adapting to their environment. In other words, the fit get fitter. But the established theory tells us that adaptation should have stopped by now, since there should be a fitness peak that the E. coli should have reached by now. And our work shows that this is not the case. And so the Lenski study has actually shown the incredible adaptability of E. coli in the past as well. So at one point, one of the culture lines spontaneously mutated to be able to metabolize citrate in the growth medium in which the colony was living. And this was something that before they could not do. And so what happened was that basically overnight, the colony burst forth with an accelerated growth. And uh, so this was 14, this was in the 14th year of the experiment. And so the ARA3 colony, uh, 
that was the particular colony that this happened in, uh, mutated. And suddenly, within a 24-hour period, the flask became incredibly cloudy because there had been a several-fold increase in the amount of cells. And um, so this showed really interesting information about evolution as well. Uh, and they noted that prior mutations in the cells must have been in effect for this to happen. And so it wasn't just one flip and then all of a sudden it could happen. And so there uh, were obviously precursors that had happened and then this allowed the um, citrate uh, metabolizing to eventually be um, developed. And so evolutionary, evolution generally relies on a series of mutations building upon each other to help create a new tape, trait. Excuse me. Um, and so that was sort of what that showed. And then in the current iteration of the experiment, the E. coli colonies continue to push the boundaries of what we know about evolution because it turns out that they continue to evolve. And so they believe that one of the things that might be happening is that because they continue to evolve, they're actually having an effect on the substrate or the, the growth medium. And then, of course, because they're having an effect on the growth medium, it seems to be a bit of a probably a feedback loop where then there are other ways that they can adjust. And, um, and so they continue to find new and novel ways to um, evolve. And it's much they evolve much more slowly now, uh, 30 years later, but they have not stopped. And that's a really interesting finding that people were not expecting. Okay, so let's shift now to another huge uh, portion of uh, scientific inquiry. We're going to move from evolution to uh, basically where is all the matter in the universe? <laughs> um, and so part of one of the big mysteries, uh, which looks like we've finally managed to solve, was that when astronomers and physicists ran calculations for how much matter there should be in the universe, they kept coming up with the idea that there should be twice as much matter as we could actually find. Um, and so it looks like we finally managed to refine our instrumentation and our models in order to be able to actually find it. And so the missing light matter, uh, which is not to be confused with dark matter, which is alas, still a mystery, has been discovered in the form of baryons that link galaxies together through filaments of hot, diffuse gas. The missing baryon problem is solved, says Hideki Tanamura at the Institute of Space Astrophysics in Orsay, France, leader of one of the two groups. The other team was led by Anna de Graaff at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. And so the gas was heretofore too cool and in too low of concentrations to be detected by X-ray telescopes. There's no sweet spot. No sweet instrument that we've yet invented that can directly observe this gas, Richard Ellis at University College London told New Scientist. It's been purely speculation until now. And so the way that they figured this out is that the teams took advantage of what is called the Sunyaev-Zeldovich effect 
And um, so this effect describes how light from the cosmic microwave background uh, is scattered off electrons in the gas as it travels through space. And so basically it leaves a dim patch when you take pictures of that background radiation pattern. And so in 2015, the Planck satellite created a map of this effect throughout the observable universe. Unfortunately, again, these clouds are so faint that they couldn't be observed directly using the map. And so what each team did was they selected a pair they selected pairs of galaxies from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey that they believed would be connected with baryons. They then stacked images from the pairs of galaxies on top of one another to magnify the effect and thus to find the evidence of gas filaments. To give you an idea of how faint this gas really is, Tenemura's team stacked the data from 260,000 pairs of galaxies, while DeGraff's team used over a million pairs. And so when compared and averaged for distance, both teams observed a similar volume of gas, making it about three times denser than the mean for normal matter in the universe, enough to form filaments. Everybody, everybody sort of knows that it has to be there, but this is the first time that somebody, two different groups no less, has come up with a definitive detection, says Ralph Kraft at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, this goes a long way towards showing that many of our ideas of how galaxies form and how structures form over the history of the universe are pretty much correct. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> we like to hear that, um, especially since I didn't get to it tonight, but I was reading, uh, sort of skimming the beginning of another story where some, uh, some astronomers and uh astrophysicists are starting to worry that uh, the Milky Way, at least, is not actually a typical uh, uh, galaxy, but might actually be some sort of quirky outlier. So that's bad news if we want to be able to extrapolate how the universe works by looking at the Milky Way, because if we're a quirky uh, outlier, that means that uh, we understand the rest of the universe a little less uh, clearly than we thought. Um, but like I said, I need to read that one a little bit more closely before I really uh, would talk to you about it. Okay, let's pull back from the cosmos now uh, to talk about what I just thought was a slightly weird story for a minute. Um, I read this and it's something that I had, I had heard about recently and I was like, oh, I thought that people knew that, but I guess that there hadn't been uh, actual studies done that it had just been sort of anecdotal. So it turns out that new research published in Southeastern Nat Naturalist is offering conclusive proof that American alligators occasionally eat sharks. So the study by Kansas State University researcher James Nifong and IMSS wildlife biologist Russell Lowers is the first to offer actual proof rather than anecdotal evidence. So Nifong captured 500 living alligators and pumped their stomach, stomachs to examine what they were consuming. Now the alligators were then released without injury, so uh, no alligators were at least permanently harmed in the uh, making of this study. Uh, and so the researchers found that four, they found four different species of sharks, 
including uh, nurse sharks and stingrays, which was actually a previously undocumented prey species for alligators. Now, alligators are generally found in freshwater and sharks and rays in saltwater, um, or at least these rays. But both species are known to foray into the territory of the other. Alligators seek out fresh water in high salinity environments, said Nifong in a statement. When it rains really hard, they can actually sip fresh water off the surface of the salt water. That can prolong the time they can stay in saltwater environments. The team also outfitted some of the alligators with GPS tracking devices, which allowed them to see that the animals were frequenting estuaries, um, which in turn are hosts to nurse, uh, to shark nurseries, uh, which of course would give alligators easy access to uh, these small sharks. The frequency of one predator eating the other is really about size dynamic, Nifong said. If a small shark swims by an alligator and the alligator feels like it can take the shark down, it will. But we also reviewed some, reviewed some old stories about larger sharks eating smaller alligators. For instance, Nifong discovered reports from the 19th century describing scenes of battle between sharks and alligators after flooding and high tides that brought the two species together, among other anecdotes suggesting that predation goes both ways. All right, let us switch gears now and talk about a warmer, fuzzier, uh, less predatory uh, in many ways uh, animal, uh, so-called man's best friend, uh, the faithful dog. So it turns out that dogs are much more expressive uh, when they know a human is looking at them uh, than when the human is either not looking at them or is distracted. This, of course, reminds me of uh, when babies or young children do a very uh, similar thing, often checking to make sure that someone is paying attention before bursting into tears, uh, especially after a fall or other injury. And so researchers at the University of Portsmouth, England's Dog Cognition Center uh tested dog expression, dogs' expressions when they were either in the presence of humans or food. Brow raising, or puppy dog eyes, was the most often observed expression. And so Dr. Julianne Kaminsky, lead author of the study published in Scientific Reports, noted, we can now be confident that the production of facial expressions made by dogs are dependent on the attention state of their audience and are not just a result of dogs being excited. In our study, they produced far more expressions when someone was watching, but seeing food treats did not have the same effect. So the findings appear to support evidence that dogs are sensitive to humans' attention and that expressions are potentially active attempts to communicate, not simply emotional displays. So the researchers studied 24 pets of various breeds aged 1 to 12. The dogs were filmed when a person uh, stood a meter away from them, alternately looking at them, being distracted, and being turned away from them. And so the expressions were evaluated by dog facts, F-A-C-S, 
And so that actually captures the uh, movements and um, from all of the different muscles in the canine's face, many of which are capable of producing very subtle and brief facial movements. And so um, FACS systems were actually first developed for humans, but they have been uh, adjusted to do this sort of uh, looking at, um, at other animals. And so this is something that's really interesting. They've been using it not only on dogs, but also on primates and other things like that. And so, yeah, it is definitely something that is really interesting. And so basically the reason that they're using this um, is so that it basically it helps to eliminate uh, the sort of possibility of human error when looking for expressions in the animals. And so, yeah. Um, And so what they did was they found that the animals definitely did more when they were around the humans than when there was just food around. Dr. Kaminsky noted that domestic dogs have a unique history. They have lived alongside humans for 30,000 years. And during that time, selection pressures seem to have acted on dogs' ability to communicate with us. We knew domestic dogs paid attention to how attentive a human is. In a previous study, we found, for example, that dogs stole more food or stole food more often when the human's eyes were closed or they had their back turned. In another study, we found dogs follow the gaze of a human if the human first established eye contact with the dog. So the dog knows the gaze. The gaze shift is directed at them. This study moves forward with what we understand about dog cognition. We now know dogs make more facial expressions when the human is paying attention. Now, of course, researchers are quick to point out that the jury is still very much out on whether the dogs are reacting to specific emotional states in humans in a way that suggests higher cognitive understanding, or if it is simply a learned behavior or even hardwired response in um to interacting with humans and so it's really important to you know not project too much into this it could be simply a learned behavior um you know a sort of pavlovian response to uh be kind of grown worthy um wherein they know that if the human if they make a certain you know look at a human they're going to get more things from that human And so that's entirely possible. It might just be a kind of learned behavior that doesn't necessarily uh, rise to the level of um, interactive cognition. But of course, it could also be that it does rise to the level of interactive cognition, because as I am constantly bringing stories to you uh, about the fact that animals often have much more uh, cognitive function than we once thought. And so, especially with a species like this that has really adapted with us and um, has really sort of been integral in the evolution of humans, that it's not entirely unsupportable uh, to think that they do have an actual connection to humans that goes beyond simply learned behaviors or um, hardwired 
kind of um, rote responses. So yeah, um, but you know, in the end, I'm still team cat. Um, no, I I love dogs. Um, I just I'm not the kind of person who could actually have a dog. I want to. I like being dog adjacent, <laughs> like other people to have dogs so that I can pet them. Um, and so yeah. Um, but anyways, let us wrap up tonight with something that actually is kind of frustrating. So good to talk about dogs before we talk about this. Um, I wanted to, I just read this this afternoon and it just, just made me very sad and very upset. Um, and so Rand Paul, uh, is joining the sort of, uh, hall of shame of Republican, uh, representatives and senators who are, who enjoy taking pot shots at uh, basic scientific research. And so there is a, uh, he has introduced new legislation this week, um, which, where is it? Oh, because of course they always have wonderfully funny uh, sort of Orwellian names to them. And so uh, he actually had a hearing and it was called Broken Beakers, Federal Support for Research. And so this was one of those sort of press conference almost kind of things where Rand Paul went through and found some things that he decided were silly and uh, paraded them out to people and said, why do we fund these things? And um, so what he wants to do is eliminate the current in-house watchdog office uh, within the National Science Foundation for uh, funding research and replace it with an entity that would randomly examine proposals chosen for funding to make sure that research will, quote unquote, deliver value to the taxpayer. And so that is really a terrible code word for I don't understand science in any way, shape or form. And I just think it's wasteful and silly. Um, because, of course, some of the most basic research leads to amazing things, but you would never know when you're doing this research what it's actually going to lead to. That's why it's called basic research and not engineering or specific different kinds of uh, technological research. It's basic research in order to find out more about what the world is like and what is going on in it so that we can be able to design new things and find out new things. And, you know, it's just very frustrating every time this comes around. And so this is a time-honored tradition, as uh, Science Magazine points out, going back at least 40 years. Uh, the first was actually a Democrat, uh, Senator William Proxmire, uh, Democrat from Wisconsin, who apparently would do his Golden Fleece Awards. Um, and so this is a problem that continues to happen. And a big issue here is that, you know, the problem is, is that there aren't a lot of scientists in the government. And that's unfortunate. Um, because a lot of these people are lawyers and businessmen, and they don't understand science. And that is a general problem with our society, is that a lot of people don't understand the importance of science. They don't understand the importance of 
basic research, understanding, they don't understand why we care about how things work. And it's just so frustrating because I don't understand how they don't care how things work. Um, And so, you know, Paul's solution, which is, of course, terrible, um, is he has this idea that they should add two members to all of these committees uh, who have no vested interest, quote unquote, in the proposed research. Um, And so one would be an expert in a field unrelated to the research uh, being proposed. And then the other would be a quote unquote taxpayer advocate, which again is just a code word for person who doesn't understand science. And um, it's really frustrating to have these kinds of things that just absolutely continue to try and stifle basic research. And unfortunately, the government is where most basic research is funded because, of course, corporations also don't want to fund basic research because they also want to have results. And so it's extremely upsetting to see that people are getting into this sort of idea that basic research shouldn't be funded. Because if basic research isn't funded, then we don't have a foundation for more advanced research. And, you know, it's basically, um, I went to a Sci Cafe uh, a couple of years ago and someone had this graph and it's basically, you know, it's a pyramid. And so you have basic research is the base of the pyramid. And, you know, the stuff that ends up being really amazing and helpful is at the top of that pyramid. But you can't have the top of the pyramid if you don't have the base of the pyramid. And so it's just really, really frustrating that this keeps coming up every year. Someone says, you know, oh, why are we putting shrimp on a treadmill? Well, you're putting shrimp on a treadmill because you're studying locomotion. And these sorts of things can be extrapolated to other things. For instance, exoskeletons. And so, you know, it's just every time they pull these things out. Most of them are things that are either really interesting, just on the face of them, or actually can be used eventually to create something that could have a value return. Um, And so, of course, in our current uh, state, nothing is safe. Um, Pretty much no one and nothing. The only thing that is safe is uh, military spending. And um, so I do worry. I worry very much that um, every day, every day, more and more things are being stripped um, from our government that are important and need to be done and that are needed for people as well. Um, Obviously, things like healthcare and uh, other things that are even more important than basic research. Um, It's just very frightening. And so um, we're just going to keep at it though. But for tonight, we are out of time. So uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics, where they will talk uh, probably more eloquently and with more equanimity than I do about uh, the current state of affairs. Um, So I will see you back here next week. Have a great night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. 
For more information, episodes from our archives, and other projects, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.